The Journalist The Fugitive Upon being named Britain's most wanted criminal, 29-year-old Erica Crompton went to her local supermarket where she bought a bottle of bleach to drink. She stopped briefly to look at the rack of newspapers and her worst fears were confirmed. The Daily Mirror, a newspaper she had previously contributed articles to, had launched a hate campaign against her. The other papers each carried headlines and stories pertaining to her crimes. These included the false imprisonment and sexual assault of a friend she knew from her university days, her suspected role in the unsolved murder of a young man at a London squat party, and her involvement in a conspiracy to detonate a bomb in Canary Wharf shortly after 9-11. There were other crimes too numerous for Erica to recall. Her double life was coming to an end. The police were closing in. Helicopters circled the night sky. Clutching her bottle of bleach, Erica hurried back home. These streets were unfamiliar. Over the past ten years, Erica had moved around a lot, rarely staying at a job or flat for more than a few months. Mostly she moved around London and a couple of times to New York. Recently she'd lived and worked in the south of England as a university lecturer. That's where things really started to unravel. But there was no point thinking about that anymore. Right now, she was in a run-down neighbourhood of inner-city Birmingham, avoiding eye contact with everyone she passed, convinced they knew exactly who she was and exactly what she had done. More strangely, these people also knew what she was about to do, and they were pleased about it. Thank God she's finally going to die. Back at her flat, Erica took a mug from the shared kitchen and shut herself in her bedroom. She filled the mug with bleach and drank it. Seven years later, she can still taste it. The thickness, the bitterness. We are chatting together in Erica's immaculate, art-filled living room at her home in Staffordshire. A vintage suitcase is open on the carpet between us, spilling out clippings of her many articles and editorials for national tabloids, glossy fashion mags, obscure low-res fanzines, and serious scientific newsletters. She struggles not to gag at the memory. It's just hard, she explains, thinking about that horrible room and my flatmates not knowing what was going on, my family so unsupportive. The Waltons and the Clusterfuck Erica grew up in the affluent, picturesque village of Acton Trussell near Stafford. Her mum was a housewife, her dad sold fire extinguishers. She describes her early years as idyllic, At least, that's how her mum liked to think of them. She would make clothes for Erica and her younger sister. She made their school uniforms. She even made the jam that went in the brown bread sandwiches in their lunchboxes. Erica hints at there being an affected quality to all this. I think mum liked to believe we were the Waltons. Her parents had grown up poor on council estates, but money was no longer a problem. Her dad's business was doing extremely well. They were getting wealthy under Thatcher, rapidly climbing the socio-economic ladder. I ask Erica if she considers her upbringing to have been typically middle class, but she shakes her head and settles on nouveau riche. She recalls that at eight years old, prior to starting middle school, she begged to be sent to a private school. She was unusually driven and can distinctly recall speaking with a friend's parents in the village and them impressing upon her how important it was to get the best possible start in life. In the event, Erica was sent to the local state school and her dad bought a new BMW. 
many years later, as part of something Erica calls Project Dad, she would find out exactly the cost of that BMW and the cost of the tuition fees. Nevertheless, Erica thrived at school. She was pretty, popular and ambitious. She became a member of the press pack for BBC Newsround and used to write plays and radio shows that she'd rehearse and perform with her friends. She was also eccentric. I used to make things up, she tells me. I'd go to the headmaster and say things like, did you know it's National Pizza Day today? And try to get him to order pizzas. She started her own gym class in the school gym and persuaded other children to sign up. She was constantly dreaming up elaborate schemes and in telling me about them, she borrows a term straight out of a psychiatric textbook. Flight of ideas. It's a phrase commonly associated with the so-called manic disorders such as bipolar and describes a rapid flow of thought with abrupt changes from one idea to the next. It is also, of course, a perfectly normal characteristic of an energetic and intellectually curious child. I pause on it only because of what Erica says next. I was never bullied for being different, but I was different. Your dad's done something terrible, Erica's mum told her. It's not your fault. Erica was 11 years old and was hiding in the loo. She'd been listening to her mum screaming at her dad to leave them alone. The children are asleep. The children are asleep. He was smashing down the front door. The terrible thing, according to Erica's mum, was that her dad was having an affair. What followed was a violent and intensely acrimonious breakdown of their marriage, with Erica and her younger sister caught in the middle. Her sister dealt with the trauma by closing down, shutting herself away in her room and not talking to anyone. It was Erica whom their mum frequently confided in. She began drinking heavily and would drunkenly wake Erica up late at night, sit on her bed and talk about what a bastard her dad was. It was a horrible time. The end of the Waltons and the start of what Erica now calls the clusterfuck. No longer getting the right kind of love at home, she began acting out at school. By age 12, she was frequently bunking off, heading out into the countryside with friends and smoking weed or getting plastered on white lightning until she was sick. By 14 or 15, she had discovered clubbing and harder drugs. She started taking a lot of speed, five-pound wraps of pink champagne that she'd bomb or snort. Erica was losing her way in life. On one occasion, she walked out of a drama class to smoke in the toilets and tried to start a fire. The toilet roll was hanging in a plastic shell and she set it alight. She was bored, angsty and couldn't give a fuck. Gone were her childhood ambitions. When she eventually left school with four C's at GCSE, her only plan was to get a job as a cleaner, buy nice dresses and go clubbing. I wonder what her parents made of all this. Erica is succinct. Mum tried her best, but you can't bring up young children when you're drunk. Her dad, now living with his new girlfriend, stepped up. In a small twist of irony, he bribed Erica to stay in education with the promise of buying her a new car, a black Fiat Uno with alloy wheels. She enrolled at a local college to do a BTEC in fashion design. She picked it because she thought it'd be a DOS. It turned out she had a talent for it. Yet her mental state remained, in her words, on a knife edge. She recalls a day at college, an illustration lesson, she just returned to class from a cigarette break, took her seat and fell to pieces. Huge, heaving, noisy sobs for what might have been half an hour with nobody able to console her. In the end, the tutor had no choice but to send her home. 
To this day, Erica has no idea what came over her. It was also at college that following a breakup with her boyfriend, Erica began abusing laxatives, becoming what she calls a functioning bulimic. For all this, she did well on the course, and a couple of years later successfully applied to study fashion at Middlesex University, attending the interview wearing a dress she'd made herself. She moved to London, into a small council flat in Bethnal Green. This flat was done out in a 60s style, complete with orange laminate surfaces. Erica loved it. She bought vintage peacock chairs, a Trechikov print to hang on the wall. She liked her flatmate, liked the course. She was making a home. She'd finally pulled through the clusterfuck. Then things took a turn for the worse. Rebirthing. It's a bit blurry, but it went something like this. Erica was in the student union bar and wasn't feeling too great. She was worried about her mum's drinking and that since moving to London, she wasn't there to help her. She was worried that her dad didn't help either. She was worried that she wasn't as thin as the other girls on her course. She was worried that her flatmate wanted them to move out of their place in Bethnal Green and to find somewhere bigger with a third person. She was worried about why this worried her so much and was feeling confused about her sexuality. She must have looked distressed because someone approached to offer comfort. Erica knew this girl a little from the course. She was from South Korea and to Erica was an impressive figure, worldly and composed. Erica felt touched that she was even giving her the time of day, asking what was wrong, offering encouragement. She had already begun to think of her as an angel when the girl said, you will see the light. For the next week, Erica ate nothing but Farley's rusks. She didn't tell anyone what she was doing, but she knew instinctively that to see the light, she would need to rebirth herself, a process that became tangled up in her already complicated relationship with food. By eating the rusks, she would get back in touch with her inner child. Nothing happened, though, so Erica realised she needed to up her game. If she stopped eating altogether, she would move into an altered consciousness and find God there. For the next seven months, she ate only to survive. Half a rivita for breakfast and a low-calorie soup with half a boiled onion later in the day. It was still too much, so she returned to abusing laxatives, eating up to two whole packets at a time. She became skeletally thin, stopped menstruating, and constantly came down with viruses and infections. Then one night, Erica went out clubbing with friends and took some ecstasy. She stepped outside for a cigarette, and whatever she said to the bouncer made him concerned enough that he told her she needed to find her friends and go home. She only remembers a powerful sense of being completely lost in the world. The next day, she woke up certain that she had committed a terrible crime and that the police were coming to get her. Sniff Sniff And so began Erica's life as a fugitive. It was also around this time that she started working for a national broadsheet newspaper. This was her second year of university and she had arranged a placement with the paper's fashion desk. It was fairly menial work, mostly sorting clothes for photo shoots, then packing them away to return to the suppliers. Other work experienced students didn't want to do that sort of thing. They wanted to be writing the stories, but Erica was fine with it. By this time, she hoped to become a fashion assistant and this seemed as good a way in as any. After the two-week placement, the paper offered to keep her on for a day a week. She says she was their Girl Friday. In return for her services, they paid for her weekly travel card. 
Her colleagues liked her. She worked hard and was personable. She was also stylish, attractive, thin as a rake, and more than prepared to party hard. She was a natural fit for the world of fashion. Fashion has its own kind of bulimia, she tells me. It latches onto anything young and new, then when you get older, it regurgitates you. By this time, she was living in a house in Homerton, East London, with a couple of third years. One evening, Erica locked herself out. She was losing her keys and credit cards all the time. Both of her housemates were away, and so Erica waited in a local pub, drinking pints of Guinness, which she considered a substitute for food. She drank a lot that night. Then at closing time, upon being kicked out, she became horribly afraid. She still feels some justification for this. The area was infamous at the time for its high crime rates, the so-called murder mile. Erica smashed a kitchen window to get inside her house. When her housemate returned later and saw the damage, she screamed at Erica, so you're an alcoholic as well as an anorexic now. Then she burst into tears. It was the end of their friendship and Erica felt forced to move out. At the newspaper, though, she felt more accepted. She felt safe there, even though they're a pool of sharks, she laughs. Erica was promoted to the role of fashion assistant, supporting the deputy fashion editor. She was making this job her life and dropped out of university. She had still received no professional input about her eating or any of her strange thoughts. Nobody in her life had suggested that she might need help. I wonder if it happened today, if it would be different, she considers, if people would be more supportive. But I didn't think to share my thoughts. I didn't think your thoughts could be unwell. She did, however, decide that she ought to try and put on some weight. At its lowest, Erica's weight plummeted to a little more than five stone. She was now up to around seven stone, but at five foot seven, she knew she still needed to put on more. Her strategy was to smoke weed, to help relax at work and to get the munchies. She bought some skunk at London Bridge and went back home to the flat in Catford, where she was now lodging. Erica smoked the skunk in the back garden, then went inside and lay on her bed. That's when the people started watching her. Her friends and her colleagues. They could all see her, and they all knew what she was doing in her bedroom. And what was she doing? Blinking. They were watching my blinking. Should I blink? Should I keep my eyes open or close them? People were laughing at me, ridiculing me. My blinking was wrong. The next night, she did it all over again. Of course, Erica isn't the first person to have felt a bit strange after smoking strong cannabis. The problem was that increasingly strange things were starting to happen in her life, even when she wasn't using drugs. It was around this time that she befriended a group of squatters and was going to squat parties. She lost her keys at one of these in Shoreditch, returning the next morning to get them. Her friends left her waiting at the door for the longest time. Then when they eventually invited her in, they showed her an art project that a couple of them were working on. Black and white photographs of people crying. One of them was of a man crying, curled up on the floor, naked. This made sense. It was because Erica had done something terrible at the party, and the photo was her friend's way of telling her how she ought to be feeling. It was also around this time, following a one-night stand with a guy she met at a gallery opening in Brick Lane, that Erica decided to get a coil fitted. Except this was no ordinary coil. She only realised as she walked away from the sexual health clinic that they had fitted a camera into her womb. This too made perfect sense. It was MI5's way of tracking her. 
I want to check something with Erica at this point. It's occurred to me that these two beliefs have quite different qualities. On the one hand, there is the abstract, almost dreamlike notion that the photograph of the crying man was a signpost to how she should be feeling. Then there is, to my mind anyway, the markedly more concrete belief that her contraceptive coil was a piece of spy equipment, one that had been placed inside her by MI5 with the specific purpose of tracking her movements. There is nothing intangible about that. It's not a vague paranoia about what people might be thinking. The coil was in place. It was either an MI5 camera or it wasn't. I pause on it because I want to understand the way these more bizarre beliefs take hold compared to her other beliefs. We frequently challenge and doubt information that we receive from, let's call it, the real world. For example, if we watch a reality TV show, we might decide that everything we are watching is entirely real and true to life. But equally, we might be sceptical about certain elements, or indeed, we might consider the whole thing to be contrived. Our understanding of the world is obviously informed by our experiences, but we also have within us the faculty to doubt the veracity of these experiences and to alter our beliefs in the wake of additional evidence. I'm trying to understand whether it was intrinsic to the nature of Erica's more unusual beliefs that they left no room for doubt. It's a long-winded way of asking, how certain were you that your coil was an MI5 camera? Erica lights a cigarette and thinks on this for a while. We've come out into a garden to drink tea and sit together in a small patch of spring sunshine. I can't have been that certain, she concludes, because if I was that certain, I would have been more freaked out than I was. It kind of came in waves. I wasn't always thinking like that. It was like... Erica stops and sniffs at the air. You know when you kind of sniff something in the air? It's like that. Like just getting a whiff of something. Except it's sniffing a thought. She gives an example of what she means. She recalls a walk to work one morning, to the newspaper offices, which at that time were in Canary Wharf. She passes a newsagent on the way and catches sight of a copy of the magazine Slee's Nation. The headline is along the lines of, We need revolution. It's enough to give Erica a whiff of something. She begins to think about the squatters that she's been hanging around with. Perhaps they aren't quite what they appear to be. They're all involved in the art world. The headline could be a message from them. This is shortly after 9-11, and it occurs to Erica that they're trying to get her to blow up Canary Wharf. They want a revolution, and as a person who knows them but also works in the corporate world, she's the ideal target to plant a bomb. She gets to the office, opens her notepad, picks up her pen with the big feather on the top, and attempts to crack on with her to-do list. Get photographic film out the fridge, write captions for latest photo shoot, call in clothes for the next shoot, clean out storage cupboard, all the while terrified that she's going to be forced to do something horrendous, something she knows she doesn't want to do. I find Erica's capacity to have kept going through all of this without any help from anyone to be more than a little humbling. For the first time in our conversation, I find myself using a medical term. I say it's extraordinary that she was managing to hold her life together, more than hold it together, start to build a career... Well, clearly, so psychotic. We fall into a brief silence. Then Erica says something that surprises me. It's good to hear that, because I haven't really gone into much detail about this period. It's kind of off the radar when I talk to clinicians because I talk about my more recent problems, so it's good to get clarity that clearly that's psychosis. Because sometimes I still do think, 
you know, that I've done something. Unwell thoughts. After a year and a half of working at the newspaper, Erica's relationship with her editor was breaking down. She was finding it increasingly difficult to concentrate, was making too many mistakes. She recalls being reprimanded because the shirts she bought in for a Victorian photo shoot weren't Victorian enough. She recalls overhearing her editor on the phone saying, I can't stand her anymore. Erica knew this comment was about her and so began planning her escape. It was a beautiful sunny day when Erica climbed up a grassy hill in a park in south-east London to take in the view and sketch out her future. She was now 23 years old. She opened her notebook and began writing down her goals. Among them, travel, volunteer for disadvantaged people, finish my degree and get a master's. Erica laughs. There were other stupid things too. Get a Maltese terrier, marry a rapper... Music, and especially hip-hop, was an important part of Erica's life and a significant motivator in her decision to add live and work in New York to her list. It was the place where so much of the music that she loved was made. It was also reassuringly far away. Three months after making her list, she was on the plane. I wonder if Erica was running towards something or running away. She concedes it was a bit of both. By this time, she had received some counselling on the NHS for her eating disorder, though she had still not spoken about the many other strange fears that drifted heavily through her thoughts. She had come to realise that her issues around food related to her mum's drinking and concluded it would be best not to settle down too close to home. In New York, Erica found a cheap hostel in Spanish Harlem, which she mostly shared with out-of-work actors who put in shifts at Burger King between auditions and hoping for their lucky break. Erica was unemployed. Prior to setting off, she'd sent her CV to the editor of a fashion and lifestyle magazine, but had received no reply. She emailed again. I'm here. Looking back, she believes the editor felt guilty, took pity on this young kid who had come all the way from England. There were no positions at the magazine, but the editor set Erica up with some office work at a photography agency. That's when things started turning soft. Erica recalls an occasion with some colleagues. They were about to get into the office elevator, but Erica couldn't step through the doors. The floor of the elevator had become somehow soft like putty, and she knew that if she stepped on it, she would sink right through. She held everyone back, terrified. Later, everything became soft, herself included. She felt her body being stretched and twisted, Erica attributed this to a kind of spiritual experience, an alteration of her consciousness. It was entirely more pedestrian concerns that would drive her back to the UK. Her salary was little more than $50 a week, she had maxed out her credit cards, and now her work visa was set to expire, meaning if she stayed, she'd be working illegally. She feared becoming stranded, unable to afford a flight home. And so it was that a few months after arriving in New York... Erica found herself penniless and living back with her mum and sister in her childhood home. The messages and symbols were now all around her. A song on the radio, Sweet Dreams My LAX by Rachel Stevens, was a message from the London squatters. Sweet dreams, you laxative abuser, you're going to prison. An oblique phone call from a friend Erica had known from her partying days at university contained evidence that Erica had committed a sex crime against her. 
The friend never said this, and Erica had no recollection of the crime, but she became feverishly obsessed with the idea, ordering old bank statements to help her piece together her movements from five years previously, and staying up late into the night, looking at articles her various editors had written, searching for metaphors and hidden messages that might reveal both what she had done and who else knew about it. Erica began to prepare for prison. She brought an outfit to wear in court. She grew her hair. If she could make herself look as young and pretty as possible, nobody would believe she could have committed these crimes. All the while, she continued working. She enrolled on an online feature-writing course. If the screen flickered, it was because someone was hacking into her computer. To pay off her debts, she took a job as a medical receptionist. One morning, a contractor came in under the pretense of needing to fix the fax machine, but secretly wired up spy equipment inside it. Erica became hysterical breaking down in tears and insisting to her colleagues that she was being set up, that people were coming to get her. She was told to take the day off. Then she was sacked for gross misconduct. It was around three o'clock in the morning when Erica's mum found her under the bed looking for surveillance equipment. Unable to contain her fears any longer, Erica confided in her mum, who persuaded her to see a GP. In the waiting room was a small high window with bars across it, a clear sign that if she told the doctor what was happening, she would be locked up. Defeated, and with thoughts of ending her own life, Erica told him anyway. The doctor prescribed her a course of sleeping tablets and referred her for an assessment with a psychiatrist. It's not such a big deal for Erica to talk about having a psychotic illness today. She's written extensively about her experiences across the national press and given many talks and lectures. Psychosis isn't such a scary word for her, It can even be, at least to a degree, a reassuring one. Her first encounter with it was a different story. Erica liked the psychiatrist. She remembers he talked openly with her about false beliefs. For the first time since the world had turned against her, she considered the idea that a person's thoughts could, in her words, become poorly. Until now, she had always viewed her mind as a spiritual thing, But chatting with the psychiatrist, she contemplated the notion that her thoughts were somehow unwell. The psychiatrist referred Erica to a specialist community team and also prescribed her a medication, which he explained was to help with her unusual thinking. He didn't, at this time, speculate with Erica about any possible diagnosis. But the word psychotic did make its way into her medical notes, as Erica would discover a couple of weeks later during a routine smear test. Catching on fire. Erica was already feeling confused. The nurse, who was carrying out her smear test, commented on her contraceptive coil, asking how long it had been in place. Except Erica didn't have a coil. She was certain she didn't. She would have remembered. She argued this to the nurse, who in turn argued that Erica definitely did have one. She knew because she was looking at it. This was the same coil that a couple of years previously, Erica believed had been fitted by MI5. Now she had no recollection of its existence. The nurse pulled up Erica's medical notes on the computer. Erica looked at the screen, and that's when she saw it. Am I psychotic? she asked. The nurse glanced at the notes. It would appear so. Recalling the moment, Erica likens it to noticing that an item of her clothing had caught fire. It was like there was something dangerous on me, she explains. I'd read in the paper about people with psychosis having children and murdering them. That was the main story that I could think of, and I just thought, if I have kids, I might murder them. 
or if I told people the truth about my illness, they would be terrified of me. And it just felt like having some kind of item of clothing that you're wearing on fire. I was scared. I thought that maybe I was actually dangerous. She wasn't the only one with these fears. The hardest thing for Erica during this time was that her sister and mum seemed more afraid than they were concerned for her. She recalls her sister calling her a freak. Her mum kicked her out of the family home. After a short while, she was invited back, but Erica felt unwanted. On reflection, she knows that her family simply had the same views and misconceptions that she herself held. She returns to the phrase that she first used when describing her family, nouveau riche. We had a big house, she tells me, but we didn't have any of the cultural capital or education. My mum wasn't about to go and research what psychosis was on the internet or read a book about it. It was more like, we know about this and we know that it's dangerous. Mild schizophrenia. Now taking a low dose of antipsychotic medication... Erica began to challenge some of her assumptions. Perhaps she wasn't a sex offender or a terrorist or a murderer. Her activities were not being monitored by MI5. She was sleeping better at night. But her relationship with her mum and sister remained deeply fraught. She moved back to New York for a short while before returning to London, where she continued to move between jobs and homes at a dizzying rate. Something, she says, is the nature of the beast. The beast being schizophrenia. It was a psychiatrist Erica saw in London who finally made the diagnosis. He prefixed it with mild. Though still feeling persecuted and bullied, she had by now successfully completed a foundation degree in journalism at the London College of Communication. She was being paid to write freelance articles. She was paying her rent. She was also in a relationship, although her partner at this time struggled to accept her diagnosis and was frustrated by how withdrawn Erica had become. She rarely went out and would spend long evenings at home researching schizophrenia online. She secretly took to Gumtree and typed, I've got schizophrenia. Does anyone else have it? Will you talk to me? She was shocked and saddened by some of the stories that came her way. Stories of horrific abuse, rape, child sex abuse. It was really putting my story into perspective, she tells me. She remembers once going to see her psychiatrist and there was a man in the reception area. His face was covered in cigarette burns, she says. He was pacing up and down in this really small space and burning his face over and over with a cigarette. And there I was, feeling a bit worried about being bullied at work, and that was mild in the grand scheme of things. In part to support a friend who was suffering from obsessive-compulsive disorder, Erica found an informal mental health support group and frequently met with them in a cafe in Queen's Park. She made a good group of friends there. She was getting interesting freelance work, blogging for a couple of national newspapers, and working on a project with Channel 4. She wrote occasional pieces about living with her illness too. She met a new boyfriend, fell in love, went travelling. For a period of several years, Erica's life was back on track. She began reading R.D. Lang, traditional psychiatry's most famous and iconic critic, and encouraged by a friend from the cafe group, she decided to wean herself off medication. She was feeling great, better than great. She started to feel what she describes as the opposite of paranoia. Everything in the world was working to help her. She might be a wizard of some kind, a shaman, have special powers. She broke up with her boyfriend, but they remained close, and this too felt like it was the best thing that had ever happened to her. Then, 
At age 29, Erica was considering her career options. A position came up for a lecturer in fashion journalism. It would mean another move, this time to the South Coast. At the interview, Erica gave a presentation on how she was a fashion writer, but actually a charlatan, on account of the fact that even a cover story she had written for Nylon magazine in the US only earned her $30. She was motivated by giving an honest account of the struggles of freelancing to the students. Her interviewers loved it. She got the job. Within a couple of months, things were going awry. A disgruntled student had found an online article that Erica had written for the Mirror about her experience of living with psychosis. It was spread around quickly on Facebook. Now everyone was reading it. It got completely ridiculed, Erica tells me. I was seen as a joke. She'd already been struggling with certain aspects of the job, not least her Tuesday morning lectures, where she would be faced with 140 students and an hour of time to fill outside of her specialism. She called them anorexic Tuesdays because the dread of them was making her lose so much weight. She says she became gaunt, that she started to have suicidal feelings. I was a lecturer being bullied by my students, she tells me. You end up praying. I got on my knees and prayed. Please, just let me die. She was delivering a seminar when the head of school knocked on the classroom door. You need to come to HR with me, right now. The issue, they explained was that Erica hadn't declared on her application that she had a mental illness. She also hadn't declared that she'd been sacked from a job, and yet here it was, in black and white, included in her article was Erica's account of her time working as a medical receptionist, her belief that someone put spy equipment in the fax machine, and all of the subsequent fallout. Erica was asked if she had anything to say for herself. She did. She said that she used to take medication, but then realised there was no such thing as schizophrenia, and so stopped. She said she didn't have a mental illness. Then, actually, I have superpowers. I'm like a shaman. Her manager explained that they didn't think she was coping with the scandal that had been created on Facebook and that they had a duty of care not to put her under that pressure. As she cleared her desk, her colleagues cut their heads down. She was walked off the premises, devastated. The thickness, the bitterness... Erica laughs and shakes her head. My next flat was so small, you could be having a shit and cooking a pasta at the same time. Refusing to be defeated, she continued her search for work. It's how she ended up living in a rundown neighbourhood of inner-city Birmingham, doing PR for a band and grappling with an article for Vice magazine. By now her thoughts were starting to seriously unravel again. The familiar fears that she was a criminal, a fugitive on the run, were returning. In a moment of clarity... Erica tried to arrange to see a GP. She had been off antipsychotic medication for several months, but spurred on by a rare visit from her dad, she thought perhaps she'd try taking it again. She went to the local doctor's surgery to register, but it was so overrun and busy that she never made an appointment. That's when the Daily Mirror launched its hate campaign. She was Britain's most wanted criminal. Vigilante groups were out to get revenge. The books in her local bookshop were all about her and her sick, dysfunctional family. She was a danger to others and terrified for herself. There was only one option left. Keeping her head down so that she wouldn't be recognised, Erica took the short walk from her flat to the supermarket. I thought I'd drink bleach because once it's in me, I wouldn't be able to get it out, she explains. For the first time in our conversations... Erica becomes tearful. 
It's painful for her to talk about, and it's painful to hear. If one good thing came out of that evening, it was that a single glimmer of light found its way into the blackness of Erica's thoughts. She didn't see it until she had swallowed down half a mug of bleach, vomited, drunk the rest, and sat down on her bed, waiting to die. But in the minutes that followed, it occurred to Erica that there are people in this world who would help someone even if they were a hated criminal. She was only 29 years old. People did reform. They did rehabilitate. Maybe, for all the terrible things she had done, there was still hope for her. She got up, walked to the communal phone in the hallway, and, with her throat now burning, dialed 999. In A&E, Erica was x-rayed to check that she wasn't pregnant, as drinking the bleach could have harmed an unborn baby. She was put on an analgesic drip to soothe the pain. She was given milk to drink. She was fortunate that no permanent damage had been caused. After 12 hours or so, at 6 o'clock in the morning, she wanted a cigarette. She was too afraid to talk to anyone and decided to step outside to see if there were any butts on the ground. She stood at the door, taking deep breaths, psyching herself up for the media circus that she knew would be outside with their cameras and microphones waiting to catch a glimpse of her, the captured criminal. She stepped out into the silence of the early morning. She looked around. It made no sense. When Erica was physically well enough to leave A&E, she was placed in a wheelchair with a blanket across her knees and wheeled up the ramp into a transport ambulance. She had no idea where she was being taken. They drove across town, arriving at an old red brick building. She was taken inside. Her first impression was that the corridor smelled of piss. Her first encounter was with an elderly woman whose teeth were rotting. The woman asked Erica what she was doing there, Erica told her she was Britain's most wanted, and the woman howled with laughter. Erica spent a week in the psychiatric hospital. She frequently phoned her dad, begging him to come and take her home, telling him that it felt like a prison, that she couldn't stand it. When she was discharged, having been re-established on a medication regime, she went to stay for a bit with her dad and his girlfriend. Nurses from a community mental health team came to visit Erica and she pressed them to hand over her medical notes. She needed to piece together what had been going on. She also wanted a confirmation of her diagnosis. The mild had now been dropped. She was told it was paranoid schizophrenia. It was a crushing blow. Erica felt that it was the end of her life. She would never get a boyfriend again, never work again. Her dad talked about building a self-contained extension to his house where Erica could live on benefits and they could keep an eye on her. This was it. Life was over. If bizarre and persecutory thoughts have been a prevailing feature of Erica's mindset, equally so is her resolve. Erica stayed at her dad's for about a month, then got back on with it. In the seven years since, she has continued to work successfully as a freelance writer and editor. Today... As we eat pizza together in her kitchen, Erica shows me an article that she wrote five years ago for the Daily Mail. It's about online dating for people with mental health problems. There is a large photograph of her and the headline, Single Female Writer, 31, Good Sense of Humour, Schizophrenic, Would Like to Meet Similar. It was shortly after she wrote it that she met her partner. They were both volunteering for a charity offering support for people with criminal convictions who were facing stigma. 
Erica has never fully shaken the thought that she might have committed crimes. It's always there at the back of her mind. But she has reconciled herself to this. And at the same time, she believes that she does have psychosis. I suggest it must be strange to hold both those thoughts at once. She shrugs. Yeah, it is. But I'm not disturbed by it. And so I leave Erica, undisturbed, to press on with her day. Driving home, my thoughts circle around that final moment of our conversation. What does it mean for a person to understand that their beliefs are detached from reality? And how might this self-knowledge interact with and shape those beliefs? Such questions sit right at the heart of how we understand psychosis. Let's think about that now.